Welcome to the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu, and I will be serving as your Femme Tour, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into graduate school. For the past 10 years, I've been helping undergraduate students get into top graduate programs in their field, and I'm really excited to share this information with you too. All right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today, I am really excited because we have another amazing guest speaker. Today, we have Ana Barba, who is going to be talking to us all about finding mentors from connecting with faculty to overcoming the nerves to going to office hours and even like developing relationships for letters of rec in the future. She's yes. going to talk about all of that and all of those more. Things. <laughs> So Anna, before we have you get started, I would love to, I'm just going to go ahead and read your bio uh, to the audience. So Anna Barba is currently a PhD candidate in Chicanx Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, her research project looks at the impacts of the use of metal detectors in K through 12. She received her BA in Ethnic Studies from Humboldt State University and a master's in Chicanx Studies from CSU Los Angeles. Cal State LA. She loves doing research, teaching, and most of all, mentoring the younger generation to where they want to go. She's also the founder of the Latina Chica Speaks magazine, check it out, and podcast, listen to that, where you can find different podcast shows and categories from which to read articles from. So check it out at Latina Chica Speaks magazine. Dot com. Welcome, yes. Anna. Yes, a lot of words for that website, huh? It's okay. Mine took grad school from touring. I'm touring. <laughs> so um, I would love for you to just get us started with telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, backstory, and anything you'd like yeah. to share. So I'm Anna, and I was raised in Inglewood, California. Um, my mom migrated here from El Salvador, and my dad migrated here from Tepatitlan, Jalisco. My mom's from El Salvador, San Salvador, El Salvador, from the capital, but more um, away from the city part of it. And my parents came here. Well, my dad came here when he was about mm, like six or nine, I want to say. I want to say six. But um, he had lost his mom very at like the, around that age. Um, so my grandfather had remarried um, and my mom came in her early 20s during the Civil War in El Salvador as a political refugee with my grandmother and her sister and her sibling. Um, and Growing up in Inglewood was kind of cool because my dad grew up there since they migrated there. A lot of the people in that area that we were in um, were from Tepatitlan, Jalisco. So some of them, if not all of them, already knew our family from Tepa. So it was like I didn't grow up in Mexico. Um, my dad was undocumented, so it wasn't... Um, easy for us to go and visit. So I don't have that experience with my Mexican side of the family. I don't have um, like an understanding of the culture as much as other people do who get the opportunity to go back and visit family. My dad, you know, just couldn't. And he tried a few times. We did get to go. I don't know how <laughs> I just got there. Um, but um, I think that when I... Well, my dad passed away a few years ago, and when I buried him, he requested he be buried in Mexico. I want to say that that was actually one of the first times I actually got to see how people communicate and share space with each other uh, in that culture and where my dad came from. And so many things made sense about how my dad um communicated with people, how he bonded with people, how he um, even started relationships with people. And the reason I bring that up too is because my dad is a big influence as to how I network with people. Like he was my first, he was my teacher on how to network or how to talk to people, how to um, request for resources or how to politely, you know, request things when you go somewhere or just asking a worker how they're doing something people rarely ever ask. And um, 
I just think those are kinds of skills, those people skills are the reasons why I was a little bit more confident in approaching professors as an undergrad and as a grad student. Um, but I think that if it hadn't been for my dad being like, oh, these people are not scary, like you can totally talk to whomever you want, these, you know, just be kind, you know, be open, um, allowed me to have that um, confidence. But definitely, like, I don't think everybody has an outgoing parent who's like, I know everyone down the block and I know everyone in the city. Like when my dad passed away, everyone that I bumped into in that like area would always say like hi you know the papa would always talk about you how's your phd program or how's this and i'd be like oh my gosh he talks about everything you know and he was like you know like so when you're in that community and you know all these people um you kind of start to realize okay you have a bond it's not just these artificial like connections which I think you see a lot in the academia world, right? Like you kind of see people who are like, oh, you know, we're just like, you know, acquaintances. Oh, we just work together. Oh, you know, you're in the cubicle next to me. But um, I think my dad kind of was like, nobody's worth that little bit of time. Everyone's worth every single minute of your time. So um, I think that's where I kind of learned how to, to bond with people and ask for stuff. And yeah, I grew up with like, public school experience. I was not in honors. I was not an avid kid. I definitely was not on the roster of kids to go to college, let alone a kid that they even believed in getting a PhD, even less so. I never thought I'd be getting my PhD. Um, I think as a public school kid who just was not in the route of college, um, I always felt like I was just trying to figure out how to get there versus like knowing that I'm gonna get there and then just trying to figure out what I want to do it was more like what do I have to do to get there and that was already a challenge of its own and I'm sure in your program um a lot of people come here because they are like me a first gen community mm -hmm. you know first gen college student who has no idea what we were doing or what we're doing even half the time and um we don't have no guidance you know um of elders who have previously done this um so I, that was my experience. And then I wanted to quickly just add that even though I was not on the college track, um, it was never in my home like, oh, you know, you're not being like driven to college, so you're not going. It was always, 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 always you're going to college. Wow. Um, and it never really made sense to me because they had no idea how to get me there, mm -hmm. but it was always like, tu vas a ir. And so when college time came around, I just remember thinking, well, my parents believe in me, I have to go, I have to figure out how, but um, I can't say that I had school, um, a school counselor or somebody who was like, you know, tracking me there. They just weren't, you know. And lastly, I fucking bugged the hell out of my honors and AVID and um, AP class friends. And I'd be like, who came to your classroom today? I saw someone came to speakers and they go, oh, the financial aid person. Oh, this person. And I'd be writing it down with my friend because me and my best friend, who's another Salvadorian girl, we'd be like, there's no way we're getting shit out of this knowledge or these resources. Like, we need to ask these questions. The cool part was that we were all friends. It was like, yeah, girl, like this happened. And then, you know, they didn't realize that that knowledge they were getting was actually not being like funneled out to everyone. So that's how I actually ended up in college for my undergrad. It was like me and my friends just doing anything and everything to figure out what it would take, you know? And, you know, some teachers were like, oh, there's a fee waiver, oh, there's this, or let me help you with financial aid, which was really useful, but we would have never known what it was unless we had asked, right? So um, I think there's like a disconnect there. Like what, if you're not, if you're in public school, you're a brown kid, you're poor, um, you're probably not going to be told how to get to college. And, and to some people, that seems like it's easy. You just apply. It's not that easy for us. It's not even, we can't even fathom that yet. <laughs> like we barely know how to pay for an application, you know, and we didn't even know we had a fee waiver until, you know, we hit financial aid. So it's just a process that's so new that we have no idea what's coming next, really. Like we're just what's next? <laughs> so, and if I can make it, like, am I going to be successful at this? I have no idea what I'm doing. 
It's so wild to me because I feel like a lot of us who are first gen, we have so many parallels in our stories. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't talk about my own dad a lot, um, but he did have that positive influence for me too. Um, growing yeah. up, I was very, very shy. And my dad, I would call him Perico because he just <laughs> wouldn't shut his mouth. And because of that, he would be late to everything and make me late to oh everything. Oh my God, me and your dad is here, Leo. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Scorpio. <laughs> okay, oh. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I feel him. Like that's my dad too, and I feel like, um, you know, when people say, I'm, I'm sure they don't do that with you because you're calladita, but with me, they're like, God, you're your, you're your dad's daughter. You know, like he, like he molded you to exactly him. You know, and but it's I, interesting because we know, have similar fathers but we're still I mean not exactly the same like for me my dad was always late to everything so now I'm super punctual and <laughs> he was very very outgoing I don't I still struggle to be fully like outgoing but I I learned a lot of those skills of like networking and community building from him and same yeah. like your parents my parents were always like I don't know how, but you're going to figure it out. You're going <laughs> to find a way to go to college and get a yes. job and do X, Y, and Z. So yes. I wanted to actually, because it's really interesting and helpful to hear about your backstory of how you even got to college mm -hmm. and, you know, hearing about your dad's influence, hearing about growing up in Inglewood and, you know, where your family's from, how far you've come. I'm curious how you got to um where you're at now in terms of grad school like what led mm -hmm. you to pursuing grad school and your current uh, phd program <laughs> so um i guess i should give a little bit of backstory to my undergrad experience i did not enjoy my undergrad experience as much as um i did enjoy my friendships i did enjoy the activism that i was doing to combat the horrible experiences or the uncomfortable um, environment we were in as people of color in Northern Cal in a predominantly white rural, you know, in a forest, <laughs> humble state um, community. And we are city kids. A lot of us were from LA or the Bay Area. And um, I remember that I just, didn't enjoy my time. I was actually a journalism major before uh, ethnic studies major. And I had a class that was one of my first journalism classes, one of the first ones. And um, I remember I brought up something. It was at the time when they had uh, Moodle. I don't remember Moodle. Um, it was like a little like online thing where professors, I, I know we have that now, like, I don't know what it would be called now, but, um, and they have like, uh, forum and you would go and say, I, you know, the professor would ask a question and you'd go and respond. And this one was like a halfway into the quarter. What do you think the class is doing or how it's doing or what you've been reading? And she was a pretty like social justice, you know, um, very like a critical, critically aware of how media influences, you know, people of certain, you know, um, ethnicities or how it values, you know, white supremacy or uh, capitalism or um, Christianity, at least in this country. And I remember saying, I love everything we're reading, everything's cool, blah, blah, blah. But the cl my classmates sometimes say things that are insensitive to communities of color or how they reference them, right? At the time, we had just made undocumented um, you know, official and to stop calling people illegal aliens, right? That that was just a term that you needed to stop using. And the pushback was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So it was like, so I said something like, um, I feel uncomfortable, you know, and I hope that if my classmates plan to be journalists that they figure out how to um, address these communities in a very, you know, empathetic and sensitive way. And it led into like a full like, um, like discussion of like how I was trying to be a martyr for my people. I was trying to pull the brace card on them, you know, predominantly white kids classroom. And it went on for months. I want to say like the professor personally called my cell phone that weekend and was like, stop answering these people. These people are freaking, you know, or she didn't say freaking right. She was super, you know, educated or whatever. And she was like, you know, don't answer them. I'm watching and I'm going to handle it. 
and I'm 18. I'm like, okay, you're going to handle it. And she couldn't handle that. You can't handle 40 racist kids or 40 ignorant kids saying like, we aren't doing anything wrong. You are just trying to find a problem. And, um, you know, racism is gone and you're, you know, you're dumb or something. And so I remember I was in organizing already. So I had some of my friends come and see how they were treating me after that. Cause after that, it wasn't cool. You know, it was like, I was getting mad dogged every day. Um, people were like rolling their eyes, scuffing if I even raised my hand. Um, this was, was throughout like, taking the class or did it stand yeah, after the class too? It's, it, I never, no, it was during the class oh, time. Okay. And then I remember I had my friends come. We were a part of this Women of Color Liberation Army, which I wrote my master's thesis on with that experience. Um, and I have them stand on the wall of the class and teacher, the professor was like, I don't know why you did this, but because of everything that's going on, I'm going to allow it, but don't do this again. And I was like, whatever. Um, and that led to, okay, but guys, I, I don't know if you guys remember MySpace, but it led to a, like, MySpace, like, war, because then they started a MySpace page saying, like, fuck this Latina and her fucking friends, and they're fucking ridiculous, and I started getting followed home because I lived, Arcata is really small, it's like a small, small town, and so the college, you literally just walk over a bridge, and then it's, like, apartments and, like, houses and whatever, so I was, I would walk home, and I remember seeing people follow me, and um, then it got really fucking serious, and it got into the point where they started a freedom of speech campaign, <laughs> and they had their, like, campaign on, like, the middle of the campus, and um, people didn't even know it was connected to my class. They thought it was something else. Even some people even thought it had to do with social justice. So they were like, yeah. And they were like, wait, you're against some brown, like what? Um, and so they brought like, you know, came to class to like challenge me and they brought like sh shirts and pins and made, made us read the preamble and how freedom of speech is, you know, allowed. And I was like, I'm never, I never silenced you. I asked you to be considerate and, 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 you know, a little bit more educated about what you plan to do as a journalist who's going to be in my community. Like, what are we talking about? Um, and it's spurted out to the point where like, um, the chair of the department of the, the chair of the, yeah, the department asked me like, do you want to continue this course or do you want to take it online or do you just want to withdraw? And I was like, so that's it. That like nothing happens to these students who have been like absolutely, you know, ruthless to me. Okay. So I quit, I quit journalism there. Like I, I had a dream to be a journalist. I was like set on it, but I had already taken ethnic study classes and I, and my friends were taking them who I had made through EOP, the educational opportunity program. If anybody's listening, that's where the homies are made. Um, and your writer dies because yes. we just like have such similar backgrounds that we understand sometimes like what the struggle is. Right. Um, anyways, that happened and I ended up in ethnic studies. So I didn't have a good time. So by the time I got my bachelor's, which I did in three years, because I had been begging my mom to let me come back to LA. And she was like, you're not transferring. I don't know what transferring is. And it sounds like you're like fucking up and you're not coming back until you finish type of thing. Um, I finished in three years. I was taking like 21 to 22 units a quarter. Um, and I was organizing and I was working, sometimes I was working three jobs um, to pay, you know, rent and, you know, be able to go out to eat dinner with my roommates or something, right? Um, and I just remember graduating feeling like I never want to go back to that place. Like, I hate academia. I hated the power trips with professors. I hated the fact that I wrote my heart and soul. And as an ESL kid, it was heartbreaking to get papers back and have them absolutely you know, dissected and devoured with red pen and saying like, what it, what kind of writing is this? Or, you know, and feeling like, do I even belong? Imposter syndrome, I just start kicking in like, do I really belong here? Like, I am an ESL kid. Like maybe these, this place is not built for me, you know, and it is built for you. It's just, you're going to work extra harder. You know, unfortunately, our educational system failed me, you know, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Not that it's okay, but um, you have to work through that. So um, I quit for a year. I was in a CC trying not to pay my loans and trying to finish one class that I needed to finish to Wait, that I didn't you, know I had missed out on. Yeah, tell can me. Can you clarify when you said you quit for a year? This was 
after like I had just like taking I, a break or yeah I took a break after my BA but in between that I took um CC classes because I found out I was missing one elective class and I was oh, like really okay. so I ended up doing like dance or something ridiculous at the CC um but I ended up taking a Native American studies class and a Chicano studies class because I was like if I'm gonna be a CC I might as well take things I want to take at the same time so I'm a full-time student and in the Chicano studies class, the professor was so much fun. Andrew Monson, if you're listening, you're amazing. Um, and he had gone through the same master's program at Cal State LA. And I remember telling him, I do, like, I don't want to go to grad school. I'm horrible. Like at test taking, like, what are you doing? And he was like, dude, you don't need a GRE, like score, you know, you just need to apply. And I, that sold me. I was like, I can go back to school. And I can go into Chicano studies and I can do what I want to do. And I don't have to take a GRE. Come again? What? Because I did horribly, horribly in the SATs. I took that shit twice, never made it even to a thousand. I was so embarrassed. I did horrible. I don't even want to look at the number. Same with the GRE. Yeah. So uh, for me, like I just, I was really nervous, you know, but when I got my master's, well, in between that time, I kept having nightmares about me having a paper due and like I would always wake up like you know and I'd be like you know what that means my subconscious really wants to write and I think I'm I'm missing something and I read it and then I ended up in the master's program Chicano studies loved it loved research loved doing every 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 part of maybe not classes because I know my classmates are probably girl you could play through the whole time it's true I was like a little complaining little you know person I was like why are we making more recent stuff why isn't there more women of color but like valid points guys you know but I had a good time and um I thought that was the end for me with my master's I thought I can teach now unfortunately when I started applying to schools I never had teaching experience because the master's program just does not have room for that kind of um you know teaching like some of them do on their own because they want to and they understand you need it but you're working so hard just to get a master's in two years that they're like you don't need to be TA or having this kind of experience so I wasn't getting callbacks because it was like, we have nothing to base your teaching experience because you just don't have any. And I felt so like, like, oh my God, I have a master's in and I can't even teach as a professor because nobody, you know, believes in me, you know, and sometimes it is about network. And again, back to being a first gen, you just don't know anyone to like hook you up with a job. And so after a year of like depression, I guess, um, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back and get my PhD. And I remember Andrew, as I just talked about, he was teaching at a CC in Chicano studies and just had his master's in Chicano studies. And they told him that he needed a master's in history or he just couldn't teach really anymore because he needed a mainstream major, right? On top of the Chicano studies to be able to teach Chicano studies at a CC, whatever. And I remember he was like, be, you know, be warned or something. And I was like, ah, uh, and then I was like, you know what? I get my PhD in Chicano studies. Nobody can stop me from teaching Chicano studies. How are you going to deny a PhD to teach Chicano studies? That makes no, that's an absolute lawsuit right there, you know? And by then, hopefully I have the money to fucking sue somebody for that shit. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but um, that's how I felt, you know, like I just didn't, I didn't, um, yeah, so I ended up applying to PhD programs for that reason. I wanted to teach and I enjoyed research. And then by the time I went into the PhD program, I fell in love with research and I fell in love with teaching even more. So um, being at a, you know, at a UC or a UCSB as well, you know, we're at a research institute and that's all, you know, what it's about. And I don't want to say I'm like fully sold on just research. Um, but it definitely is nice to be in a school that has all those resources and focuses so much on that. Because comparing even just libraries like Cal State and a C, even a CC library, you know, is like, it's embarrassing, you know? And I remember being at the CC because that's where all my friends from high school were. And I was thinking this library is shit. Like it is literally like, like the donations of a goodwill basically compared to the, to the libraries I've been in. You know, and it was unfortunate because these are the kinds of libraries where people in CC are supposed to thrive. And these are my friends, you know, and I'm like, they deserve books that are way more current. They deserve more books than they already have. They deserve a three-story library versus one, you know? So 
um, just all those things took me back to a PhD for sure. And, and I just thought, let's see if I can. And I got into one of five. I applied to five, I'll be honest. And I got rejected. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you get rejected all the time. The first time is always rejection. But the school that I got into, UCSB, was my top school, aside from UCLA. Those, it was like, I see, you know, and UCLA rejected me. And I was so like, bummed about it. But, um, and okay. I know you're a brute. <laughs> I went to UCLA and I'm, I'm no longer there. So I know. And like I lived in LA, so it just made sense for me to stay, you know, because then I could, you know, commute. But then being at Santa Barbara, I realized I would have hated that commute because everything still, happens for a reason. Yes. 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 And, and you know, what I enjoyed my time at UCLA. And you're going to ask me more. So go ahead. Oh, well, I just wanted to react to everything that you're saying because you've said so much and I'm trying to process and reflect on it. And I, I just, well, first off, want to thank you because the way that you're reflecting on your backstory, you're being so real and honest and raw mm -hmm. and in sharing, like kind of unfiltered your experience. Like I, what, what I would consider what you experienced as un, in undergrad is a nightmare scenario for any student of color. It's mm -hmm. being attacked by, by white students. It's being at a primarily white or PWI institution mm -hmm. just complete and utter just toxicity and like you said you said it you said the how did you say it? the educational system failed me and for a lot of individuals that would have resulted in them being pushed out and leaving and saying forget this yeah. f this yeah. i'm leaving and it did it totally did i watched friends get pushed out of a university so quickly mm -hmm. um and even have post-traumatic stress from racist situations not just and you telling campus, me having nightmares outside, about yeah. papers that is to yeah. me uh, it could be considered a trauma response or it could be considered mm -hmm. PTSD. it could be considered whatever you want to call it but right you experience toxicity and that's the, the real truth that it can happen and it does happen to students of color and yet you took some time off ended up going mm -hmm. back to the classes ended up getting your <laughs> master's loving it and now realizing you want to go back, you want to teach and you wanted to get your PhD and, and you're enjoying the research. So it's just really fascinating to me because there's a good, the bad, the ugly. You've been sharing some of the ugly, but you're also sharing like the, the reasons why you're still here. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, PhD program, we haven't even, I haven't even dug into how nightmarish that, that. Oh yeah. Is, we can, you know? That's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> topic which we might yes, have you come back to I wanted to be that. honest about the fact that that you know is also there you know that um and even though I went a lot through what I went through I don't think I was still prepared for what grad school is what it what it entails aside from just your courses right like yeah. there's a whole other experience I'm sure it's all over your show so you guys <laughs> check it out um find the resources to get you through those things and you keep mentioning some of the folks that have helped you along the way so this brings us to the the topic yes. today of finding yes. mentors and you know yes. I would love to hear more uh like your approach on on finding mentors on connecting and even just like getting yourself out of you know your your little shell and yeah, putting my yourself shell. <laughs> <out there. laughs> yeah I definitely so from the experience with undergrad for sure um in grad school I became very very um defensive and I put my wall up really high with not just um people but with faculty and even workers in the department because I felt like um, I had gone through so much and nothing was done, you know, by the administration that um, I felt like I can be friends with these people, but I cannot fully uh, trust or, or believe that these people are going to have my back 100% the entire time I'm here and um, I have to protect myself. Unfortunately, I was very right, right? Um, and I wish I wasn't. I, I really wish... As a, as a matter of fact, I thought that going into Chicano studies where a bunch of people were going to look like me was going to be the best decision ever because people weren't going to be um, cutthroat or there wasn't going to be um, competition or just this like bubble idea that everybody's about everybody being successful and about helping everybody getting out. And that's just unfortunately not true. 
I don't know what it is, if it's the university setting, if it's um, the politics, I just don't know what makes it that way. And I just remember being like uber protective about that. So when I started talking to faculty, so for my program, you come in with one faculty member already, your advisor, which is your main person who's going to guide you. So that's like determined right when you go in, you know who you're advising. Yeah, because um, so when you write your your application, you normally the best thing you can do, and if you guys are writing your applications next year, because I think we're done now, um, you or at the end of this year, I guess, um, you want to put in there what at least three professors you would potentially work with, because um, the idea is you want to go into a department where people are going to help you. If you don't find similarities or a way for faculty to help you with your project, maybe that's their specialty or they're around that area, um, then if you don't have anyone to help you with your project, you're not gonna get in. Not because your project isn't amazing, it probably is super amazing. Unfortunately, if there's no faculty to guide you and help you, what are, what's the point of you being in that department when all you're gonna feel is you're by yourself and nobody can give you the resources or guidance or theories or any of these things that you need in order to make your research you know, um, progress. And so, when I applied, I applied, you know, I wrote these different people I wanted to work with, and then they told me one of them was going to be my advisor. Um, some programs allow for that to change. I did change mine. Um, it didn't go as well as I thought it was going to go. Um, and anyways, that's not the person I wanted to talk about. I actually wanted to talk about um, a person that I ended up feeling like we were very much alike, which is Dr. Ines Talamantes from Religious Studies. She started the Native American oh. and Indigenous Studies, Religious Studies, uh, Native American Traditions, Religious Traditions, minor and major. Um, that was my, that was my BFF, that was Familia. Um, when I started at UCSB back in early 2013 or something crazy like that, um, one of my best friend's little sisters who was my best friend, she was my best friend my entire time from middle school to high school, her, one of her younger sisters went to UCSB. And when I got to UCSB for my PhD, she was like, I'm out, I'm getting my BA. And I was like, yay. But she was like, but I have someone you need to meet. And I was like, okay. And she was like, there's a woman in religious studies, a Chicana, indigenous woman who wants to meet you. She heard there's a PhD Chicana in town and she wants to meet you and she needs to know who you are. And I was like, okay, you know, porque we were raised with parents who are very much about our culture and our tradition. So I knew, okay, I need to do whatever she says because she, she definitely knows what's up and I need to be respectful of this. I went to go meet Ines with her and it was like a match made in heaven, of course. If anybody ever met Ines Salamantes, your heart would melt for this woman. She is such a sweetheart. And um, when I met her, she was like, Mija, like I've been, I've been hearing you're here and I wanted to meet you because you're in Chicano studies and you know, if things go awry or you need help, like I'm always here, my door is always open. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm not in this, I'm not in this PhD program, religious studies, but I, you know, I could still potentially have her on my committee. And I remember she was so sweet. She was like, Mira. And you know, she was very down and honest. She was like, Mira, this is gonna be hard work, you know. You know, and you have to like do everything that they say as they say it, you know, learn or whatever. But I'll never forget who you are, never forget where you came from. And I remember I told my dad, because at the time she was 83 years old when I started. And I remember I told my dad, dad, conocí una muchacha, una señora, right? <laughs> and es maestra and me quiere ayudar y no sé, you know, I don't know, like, I'm going to try to work with her. And I was like, and I was like 83 and she was like oh you're gonna learn you're gonna learn from this woman she's gonna have all the knowledge you need she's been there for so long and she is a woman of color 
and she's going to teach you the ropes. You need to listen to everything she has to say. You need to help her with anything she needs, and you need to learn whatever you can from her. Best advice my father could have ever given me because that woman was such a blessing and um, she's part of my committee. Like even though she has passed, she passed right before COVID, before I moved out. And it was one of the cutest things during my, during my, um, hold on. So uh, my dad, yeah, he told me to work with her. And I remember when I started working with her, she ended up in my, in my committee and the day of my defense of my committee to advance so that I could go do the research in my MA, she came in with like a piece of foil and I was like, this? and then mm-hmm. I did my presentation and everybody was like, this is a great project, move forward, go do the research, go into the field. And she's like, wait, I have something to say. You know, she's not my main committee member. My main committee is Edwina Barbosa, amazing woman. I don't have time to talk about the amazing things she's done for me. But for Ines, she was like, tengo que decir algo. We're like, ¿qué pasó? She unwraps the fucking foil and there's a chile quemado in there. And she's like, I just wanted to remind you because when I read this, it sounded really white. And I just want to remind you wherever you end up that this is who you are. Never forget that, you know, and try your best and try your, and try your best to sugar. I got it. Um, yeah, she was just like, just do your best at, you know, what you do, but never forget who you are. And, and I was like, she is so freaking crazy and silly, but I understood what she meant because there's not that many of us up here. Women of color with a PhD are rare, like so rare. A woman of color as a professor then is even rarer. So for her, she was just like, do you know you, but never forget, you know, who you are because these students are gonna need you. And she was a great mentor. She was like a great example of that. And I worked with her for like $20 or something a week or something. And I would just help her check her emails and stuff. But in those conversations we would have every morning, we would get our coffee and a, and like a little, I forget what it was, a bear claw. She loved these bear claws. Oh my God. Yera diabetica. So I wasn't the best influence either. Um, <laughs> my parents are both diabetic. Well, my dad was diabetic. He passed from that. But um, so like, so I, the conversations we had all the time, as a matter of fact, she was really close to her dad and he had passed. So a lot of our like conversations were about the um, heavy amounts of love we had for our fathers so when I lost my dad, I lost her like a little bit after. It was really interesting, but I just always went back to like how beautiful she talked about her dad and how I eventually wanted to have the opportunity to share stories about my dad and not feel like breaking and like, you know, being like, oh, he's not here. Like, you know, and, and kind of like being more at peace with it. And so she gave me so many more resources beyond just the academic world. And that is an amazing mentor. Now, is every mentor you're going to find on campus like that? No. And you need to know there's different kinds of mentors. Like, I have mentors who are just strictly for academic stuff. They don't want to hear your personal stuff. They don't want to hear, um, you know, how you're struggling with like your emotional or your whatever. I, they just want to read your stuff. And, and that's great. I appreciate that. And other professors are more in tune. And unfortunately, a lot of them are women of color who will ask the more tougher questions. Like, how are you balancing this? How are you doing? Um, are you seeking therapy? Are you, you know, because I, you know, going through loss, of course, you should be seeking therapy. So I think those are the kinds of questions that I don't think male professors often ask or white professors, white male professors, even who dominate the university still. Um, those are not the kinds of questions most of them will ask. Some will, I'm not even going to fake it because there is good white professors, but um it's just really difficult to go through what you go through without people understanding, you know, like, 
diabetes in the Latino community. Hello, like such a huge problem. You know, both my parents have it. And so losing my dad to it was kind of like a wake up call, like, hey, this is an issue in our community. And, um, you know, you're not any different than not to like shame myself and be like, Mm -hmm. don't be sad because everybody else is going through it. But more like there's an issue here. And, um, you know, it's part of the medical industry system that, you know, maybe failed my dad in some ways, you know, although my dad had his own downfalls. So yin and yang, you know? Yeah. One thing I'm hearing from you, I mean, that comes to mind for me is like, sometimes we don't, we don't know when you're reaching out for a mentor, if they're going to be, what kind of mentor they're going to be. Like, are they going right. to be uh, receptive to things? Like you might share something personal, you know, what's going mm-hmm. on with your, with your family's health or right. passing of your dad. And like you said, like, you don't know, but mm-hmm. it's more often than not that it's, you know, women or women of color who are providing this kind of feminized labor and it's you know the the white professors or the male professors who like you said they're just there to like for academic they don't ask the holistic yeah. questions like how mm-hmm. are you making sure that you're like mind body spirit is okay right and so it's just like for me I always wonder because I, when I was an undergrad I struggled with finding mentors and finding yeah. good mentors, like, because yes. I always, re- I guess, because I was an English major in a predominantly white department, mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. time I met with someone, I felt like I, they made me feel like I was bugging them, not that yes. I felt, they, they made me feel like I was wasting their time, yeah. and so I'm wondering, like, what advice you would give to students of color that maybe they are feeling discouraged, especially a whole you know- year and a half of, like, being on Zoom world and feeling like no one's <laughs> responding to their emails, they can't just mm-hmm. go to an a physical office for office hours like how do they make these connections yeah well I think as an undergrad I think I remember feeling like why are more professors more understanding why are they more empathetic in, in my from my lens right from my experience from where I'm at as a grad student now seeing like the professor position and seeing like what they're balancing what they're going through or who they are, right? Um, Some people are just introverted and they really have an amazing, amazing way of doing research, but they have a horrible way of being social or even communicating with people or working with students, working with colleagues. Um, And at first I used to think, damn, shouldn't they go to a training or something? (laughs) But, Putting myself in that position, I think everybody should be allowed to be themselves, right, in the university. And if you're an introvert and you just cannot communicate with people, or let's say you have ADHD or um, you're autistic or something, and you just communicate differently than what other people are used to, then um, people can perceive it like myself as like, damn, that person sucks or something, right? Or that person just doesn't want to talk with people and in reality they're just having a tough time engaging in a social space or in a social environment and so sometimes you got to catch these people alone you know and yeah if they're not answering their emails or you know during office hours they obviously look like they have a thousand other things they're worrying about they probably do um unfortunately I don't want anybody to think that everyone can be a mentor and I've had people tell me they never even found one professor that helped them um, and some people find workers on campus like I remember one of the ladies from financial aid became a really good friend of mine and she would invite me to her home and she would you know make me breakfast or something and that was really useful but was she my professor no but she had gone to Harvard and didn't finish her PhD program so she had a lot of resources and, and advice that she wanted to give me that I wasn't getting from the professors but I was getting from her because she felt like I didn't make it because it was a lot going on, but I think you're smart enough to make it to grad school and I want you to know these, these, you know, things, you know, and that's the one thing that I will say, like, don't ever think that mentorship only can come from a professor on campus because that's just not true. Um, you can, I mean, you're in the McNair program, you're in 
like a prime example of someone on campus who is not a professor but has the most resources that anybody could um, need for grad school, right? Or for, for schooling or for academics, right? And I think that people just don't do that, you know? They don't realize that they have programs or people out on campus that are that that stem beyond you know the department you're in um but you do need someone from your department and that's the that's that's the hung up because you try to find someone and you don't know how to communicate or how to like bond with these people like I said I thought I could make community with anyone I thought if I'm nice enough and I just say hello and I'm and, you know courteous and 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 respectful they should want to help me um and that's just not true um but if you keep showing up to their office hours and you keep talking with them even though maybe last week they were having a really fucked up week and they were overwhelmed but maybe this week you caught them and they're like totally in tune and whatever the hell you're talking about this week on that day you want to ask them hey would you be interested in being a mentor you know for me like i'm having a tough time on those good days you want to catch them and you want to ask now if they say i have too many students i have too much going on believe me they do they really do um i think that as a grad student um you have the opportunity and i don't want to be like you're gonna be there forever but i've been here for almost 10 years so kind of um but sometimes those advisors you really want to work with don't have room for you when you first walk through the door but then students graduate the at the end of the year and let's say two of them graduated from that person's like cohort or their their you know whatever however students they're mentoring and all of a sudden there's this room for people and you come back and you're like hey remember me like i came here last year i came here three years ago i'm still here you want to mentor me i know so and so graduated they might say, yeah, I have the time now. Or no, I just don't, I just don't see myself in this project. I don't know how I can fit into this project. And that's something else you gotta be like okay with. Like if somebody says, I don't see how I fit in, but you do, you totally see how they fit in, but they don't, don't push it because at the end of the day, that's gonna be a horrible working experience because you're you're forcing something onto someone and eventually they're just gonna hate you or be bitter or just not even put the kind of energy that someone who would love to be part of your project who would love the idea who wants you to do your the best project ever will give you versus someone who's half-assing and being like well yeah she wanted a mentor you know and that's just for grad school as an undergrad take anyone like anyone who's willing to help you knock yourself out but also just recognize that not everyone is gonna mentor you the same and not everyone's gonna mentor you on the same things. But at the end of the day, you wanna kind of like have a balance, like, okay, this person I can talk to about my personal life, this person I can talk to about grad school, this person I can talk to about writing essays, this person, and you kind of like start um, picking out who's what. Um, but again, like for someone who has a tough time approaching people I think this is scary to think oh my god I have to find five different people to do five different things for me and that's just not what I'm also saying but I am saying that's a full advantage and that's you should try to but if you only can find one mentor and that's all you can do that's fine and 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 you know take advantage of that one mentor advisor but try to have more than one try to go outside of your department try to like just look in other places for people to help you because they're out there and they're going to help you in ways that you just didn't imagine you know like Ines Talamantes again was not in my committee at the beginning was not in my department I would have never found her had not my friend's sister you know known her already but um showing up at her door was the best decision I could have ever made, you know? Um, so even when you don't know somebody and somebody says, oh, I know somebody who can potentially help you, um, take it up. It might be an Yvette, it might be an Ines, it might be an Anna, like you never know. And that might be the person you end up vibing the best with and you might vibe with them for the rest of your career who can potentially help you, you know? I have some people who I still connect with from undergrad who one of them being the woman from financial aid I still talk to her you know and she still gives me feedback so um some people are willing to ride or die for you to like to ride you know and for years and years and years and some are not so um just feel it out 
like my dad taught me to always be nice, always be appreciative, always be grateful. People appreciate you just telling them, thank you for giving me this time. Thank you for reading this. Thank you. Never forget to say thank you. People work their booties off to give you feedback. And if when you don't say thank you, you just kind of walk away. That's like the one thing I will say, don't do that. You know, always, always say thank you. Always make sure you let them know that you appreciate everything they've done because um, in the position in academia, we're just overworked. Like any other, I'm sure, like any other occupation, we all say we're overworked, but we really are overworked. So um, if we look at an application or an essay or whatever, just know we really did take the time out of our day um, to do that, you know, and because we, it probably has nothing to do, you're not, sometimes you're not even my students anymore. And I'm like, sure, I'll read your history essay. <laughs> but because they build that bond with me and they keep coming back, like that's why I do those things for them. You know, if they weren't bonding with me, then why am I checking your essay for history, right? Um, but when you make those connections, those really are those genuine connections, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. Tienes otra pregunta. I hope I answered it. Yeah, I feel like you you really addressed everything, but I just want to kind of sum up some of what I got, like the, the key takeaways. So yeah, I like that you said to not take things personally. Sometimes you just that time that you meet with someone, you never know. Like I'm super awkward in groups. Like I am introverted and I own it and it's fine. I'm really good one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so it's just like, okay, don't take it personally. However, people react to you meeting with them in whatever setting you're in. So you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what their yeah. personality is like. Don't take it personally. And then um, two, I really like that you said to think about different people outside of just professors as mentors. So I know we have mentioned, how do you secure a mentor? And we usually mm -hmm. refer to faculty, but yes. thinking about staff members, thinking about peers, you know, their peer mentorship, um, yes. that's a thing. Thinking about um, <laughs> outside of TAs, yes. grad students, um, mm -hmm. there's so many different, even I've heard of folks who have made connections with, with like, custodians or janitors yes. so they, they become friends with them and they're they're there as like your I, cheerleader giving you that pep mm -hmm. talk tu puedes you know you got this ponte las pilas yeah. like you, you you know that helps too that's like emotional it's absolutely true <laughs> like i used to santa barbara when i was studying for my master's um you have an exam that you take for eight hours four hours per day um, and we had to read like a bunch of like stuff and i remember um sometimes we would read on campus in like one of like the rooms and the custodians would come in and they'd be like, tienen or whatever, and they'd clean and we'd tell them, they'd be like, okay, I las veo. And towards like, yeah, you know, years pass and they'd always ask, like, ya terminaron, ya terminaron, ya han terminado. Or like, <laughs> one thing was I hated one of these people in the building that I worked in. And that woman just bothered me all the time. And it was always like an issue of like, um, just like ignoring my living, like my my presence. And I hate it that I hate when people just do not acknowledge you because it's just the worst feeling to, to have someone not even acknowledge your existence. So I remember I was telling one of the custodians cause she had just walked by and she just like, you know, nose up and just like ignored me. And I told them, mira, viste eso, ella trabaja conmigo, ella ni me hace caso, you know? And I remember they're like, esa, ay, esa es bien despoteca. And you know, they dropped dimes on her. They dropped dimes on her August. They dropped dimes on like so many things. And I remember I was like, okay, I'm not crazy if yeah. the workers themselves do not like her because mm -hmm. of the way that she behaves or that she, you know, handles certain situations in which they're part of. So when I, you know, expressed myself, they were like, I ni te preocupes por esa, porque, you know, and then I'm like, yeah. oh, thank you. Or like, just like different things. Like, I feel like the Spanish in my, and it, it keeps like running away from me because there's less and less Spanish being spoken around me. So the workers on campus and even in my apartment complex, I'd always talk to them in Spanish. And I remember some of them would be like, yeah, parale de hablar así porque, you know, they'd be like, yo quiero, you know, I remember one guy was like, I'm trying to be a manager and I'm trying to move up and I can't, you know, speak in Spanish. Like I need to learn English. And I was like, okay, pues hablamos en inglés o you know, no más. But I felt like that was like, when I felt at, like comfortable on campus, when I felt at home or when I, when, I, when I was homesick really, or when I felt like 
fuck this place like I don't feel like I belong and why am I here and then bumping into a custodian and then them saying like and you can't really tell them you're having a bad time because to them they're like this is the best opportunity ever for you and we work these shitty ass jobs and we love seeing people that look like us make it in places like this versus us you know being the outsiders right when they see us being you know on the other end with power in their opinion um it 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 makes them happy and for me it was just a matter of like feeling like okay I feel at home I feel like I'm in you know in my environment I feel in community because they get me or they're like you know speaking in Spanish and I miss that um so sometimes even those people become just family um mm-hmm. just people who can be supportive in ways that you just you don't need it to be so uberly like in your face like I you know like how can I help you but it's more like la porra you know mm-hmm. like you said like la porra itself like just being happy for you and rooting you on when you see them it makes a difference you know yeah. um on those bad days when I just didn't know you know, if I was going to make it for the next week, just seeing them made me go home and rethink everything and be like, you know what, this is what I want to do. And um, as hard as this is right now, um, nothing compares to, you know, my mom works at a factory, my dad is undocumented, so they struggled as well. So a lot of that reflection also goes back to our parents and um, how hard they work. And I've never have to you know, work a laborious job. And mm-hmm. so I'm very privileged in that way. And so to make complaints sometimes feels like, and I think this goes back to like um, women of color feeling like you can do everything and we can't. And that's really the reality, we can't. But the idea that we have to take up these burdens, you know? And so I don't want to say, oh, siempre I can make it. But to the very least, I know that I come from very strong women, a strong legacy, right? Like my mom in general, like to come here in the 20s. I, I didn't mention this, but when I wanted to transfer back from my BA to, to LA and finish, my mom came to Humboldt and drove like crazy amount of hours. And she basically told me, I'm not letting you transfer because when I, because of, she knew it had to do with racism, me facing racism and never having experienced that in LA in the, at the level that it was at. And she was like, look, when I first got here, I cleaned houses and I got spat at. And I didn't only get spat at by adults, I got spat at by their children. And I went back the next day to work. So if you want to be upset about these people in your classroom, don't, because they're nobodies. They're not paying your rent and they're not gonna change anything. Like you need to do your education and graduate and prove these people wrong. Um, That just stuck with me, you know? Um, Was I upset with my mom? Yes. did I understand what she was trying to say? Yes, because she was my age at that point. Well, she was like 21 when she was here. So, but that was her experience, you know? So like, this is nothing compared to this. Although we shouldn't be comparing <laughs> PTSD, basically trauma. But um, I felt like I understood what she was trying to say though. Like, we're gonna better our family and you don't need to go through these fucked up situations and let that affect you the way it's affecting you. Because I did it when I was, you know, going through far worse than you, you know, and in a position where you can be deported or fucking, you know, just completely erased from this place um, in any second. And so, um, yeah, those are the things you reflect on. And then when you're there, people who are the workers will tell you their story similar to that. And you'll think about your parents or you'll think about your family and you'll say, damn, like, I'm very privileged to be here and I want to better these communities. And I hope that whatever I do brings the resources so that more individuals can get a better living experience and living expense, you know, a living wage that you can make it in, you know? What you're saying is just reminding me about the importance of storytelling, of oral histories, of, yes. of knowing or thinking about mentoring outside of just a formal relationship, but actually mm-hmm. like there are a lot of individuals out there who may not have a formal education who can still be your mentor, can still yeah. be part of your community. My daddy, my daddy yes. was a prime example. Yes. Like he didn't get far in schooling, but 
he was very smart and he did construction and he did different he actually did various occupations and I always felt like how the hell does this dude learn a new you know job occupation other people want to get certificates before they feel confident to do it um and as a person who's undocumented you got to make things work and you become this like chameleon of skills like you just you know so yeah I agree like there's people who have resources for you that never went into the university and you also have to consider you know those and you haven't even mentioned this family, like your parents or your, you know, I know I call my mom all the fucking time to the point where my dad one time was like, stop calling your mom. You're freaking her out. She's freaking out. Like you're, you're having a bad time. And now she's having a bad time. Stop telling her you're having a bad time. And I was like, okay, I will tell my mom that I'm having a bad time. I give it to myself, you know? Um, but that was my, that was my, you know, that was who I felt comfortable telling all these problems to. And she was just like, you know, the overwhelm. So in other ways, um, I also realized to, to close all this off, um, sometimes it's not mentorship you're looking for, it's therapy. And um, I unfortunately didn't look for therapy. I have anxiety and panic attacks um, and I had them all through undergrad. And I always thought it was because I was a first gen that I just was freaking out. And I did, my body was just responding. Oh my gosh, I didn't know, um, oh. Because I'm like so new and I don't know what I'm doing. And then when I got into my master's program, I was with my now wife. Her family was like, dude, they work in the medical industry. They're like, dude, you're having panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Do you know what this is? And I'd be like, no, I don't, what, huh? Um, and then I started seeking you know, help. And I wish I had seeked help before as an undergrad. Um, it would have helped in so many ways. It's okay. It happens the way it was supposed to happen. So as a grad student, I think um, you have to make that decision. Like if you are not feeling okay, go seek therapy, go seek counseling. And if you don't find someone who works for you, keep keep going, keep going. I know doing that during grad school is hard, even at the beginning, but trust me through throughout the, the experience, throughout the years, you're going to appreciate that you had, you know, seeked help elsewhere, you know, um, because you can't do this by yourself. You really can't. Um, at the moment, I'm taking time off. I, I'm almost done, and I had to take it off because of my dad's passing and Inez's passing, um, and I just felt like I needed a break, and I gave myself that opportunity. Um, and you deserve it. Everybody has their own timeline, you know? Thank you. Yeah. So just, you know, just listen to yourself and, and take care of yourself because um, there's no point to graduating with your degrees if you're going to come up fucked up. Like, yeah. just, you can't function that way. So don't like overdo it to the point where you just can't even work because you fucked yourself up, you know, emotionally, mentally, physically, yeah. you know, all these things. So that's the last thing I'll say. It's pretty intense, but um, it really is another part of surviving. It's mm -hmm. part of the mentoring, but it's a different kind of mentor because you pay them and you're there to, to pay them. But unfortunately, sometimes our problems are a lot, especially in grad school. And I realized that when my mom was like over, she felt overwhelmed that, okay, I need to, you know, find uh, I need to go back to therapy and I need to talk to someone who gets paid for this and who can help me and listen to me. And I won't feel this like huge burden of like, oh my God, is my mom going to have a mental breakdown because I'm having a mental breakdown. Yeah. Um, but then you learn how to talk to them and still mm -hmm. tell them things, but not to the point where they feel like, oh my God, you know, she's not okay or something, um, which my mom felt a lot of the time, but um, I was okay. I just think that I was on the bridge of mental breakdowns and that's just grad school for some reason is just one of the hardest things you can really um commit to and even though i had a master's already and i had already gone into a master's program i'm a, being a thousand percent honest it didn't make it any easier to do my phd it's been just as hard if not harder so um you can be as prepared as you want but sometimes the experience is just bigger than yourself and you need to seek help 
so that you can I, survive. I think we all, we all could benefit from professional, like formal and informal forms of support. So I'm constantly reminding mm -hmm. students, like if you have access to resources and to mental health resources in particular, definitely take advantage of them. Like we can all benefit from it. I think that's yes. a great way to wrap things up. One yes. last question for you, just before sure. you go. How can, <laughs> sure. um, how can my listeners connect with you? If they resonated with you, want to be in touch, want to yeah. follow you, how can they reach you? Um, so they can reach me, of course, on the website. We have a contact form at Latina Chica Speaks, magazine.com. I'm already getting tongue-tied too. <laughs> Um, you can also email me at latinachicaspeaks at gmail.com. Um, and, you know, whatever you guys want to ask, you guys can also check out, um, which is a secreto, but I'll, get, I'll let it out of this bag. Yvette's going to be on my show at Intersection of Combos, <laughs> which is another podcast that we have for the magazine. We have three different podcasts, one for the magazine, one Comadreando Hour, one Intersectional Conversation. You stay so, busy. <laughs> I stay busy, girl. Um, but um, check that out. You'll be on there. So if you have other questions about, you know, the university, check Intersectional Combos out. It's a really good um, podcast. And the IG page is so cute. I think that a lot of us, like yourself, we enjoy leaving even little resources and little gold nuggets in our feeds you know in our grid so even beyond just the podcast episodes we have boy other stuff going on in the ig and on the website of course we share everything so um just sign up to our email list maybe you want to make sure you follow everything i do on there because we have a bunch of things going on but um thank you so much for having me again thank you so much anna Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you tune in. You can also support the podcast by donating to my Patreon page, Anchor page, or Venmo account, which is at Grad School Fem Touring. If you have questions or episode topics, you can contact me by sending me a DM on Instagram sending me an email to gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com, sending me a voice message on Anchor, or sending me a message via my personal website at eventmartinezvu.com. Until next time. <laughs>